In this week's episode, I chat with my friend Jillian about paying off debt, becoming financially independent, managing bipolar, and her new book, Fire the Haters. As a side note, I'll be taking a break from the podcast the rest of December, and we'll be back with new episodes in the new year. If you enjoy the show, reviewing the podcast would mean so much to me. I hope you take this time to rest and enjoy this amazing episode. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy, and I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. This is Melanie Loggert, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing my friend and former Lola Retreat speaker, Jillian Johnsrud. After becoming financially independent at 32 years old, Jillian turned her personal and professional experience towards a creative life. She is a popular public speaker, teaches online classes, she works as a coach and a writer. Her new book, Fire the Haters, Finding the Courage to Create Online in a Critical World, helps creatives and entrepreneurs share their best work with the world. She hosts the Everyday Courage podcast, and her husband and she live in Montana near Glacier National Park with their five kids. She's an avid traveler and drinks drinker of hot tea. You can connect with her at jillianjohnsrud.com. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to reconnect with you. It's been a few years. Um, I know you spoke at Lola Retreat Seattle in 2019, and you gave an amazing talk there, which we'll get into in a little bit, but I'm so happy to have you on here for your next chapter (laughs) with your new book. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Well, first of all, I want to give our listeners some context about who you are and your story. So let's talk about the sexy stuff. So your family went from $55,000 in debt to financially independent in your 30s, which is an incredible and amazing feat. So everyone wants to know, how did you do it? And I know it's probably not a short answer, but what are your tips and tricks along the way? What are your you know biggest takeaways? Well, the super short answer is that we decided to try to save half of our income uh, from the time that we got married. And and I would say that save half kind of principle is what largely carried us through. But for me, I had grown up, you know, kind of like right around the poverty line and it had um it had a huge impact on my childhood to the point where when I was about 12, I asked my mom um, to leave the current marriage that she was in. And I was just like, this isn't healthy. This doesn't feel safe. Like we need to leave. And she was just very honest and said, Jillian, I can't afford to. Oh, so and I went rough. upstairs. Yeah. I just, I cried and cried and cried and cried into my pillow, but it gave me this perspective of 
oh, money gives you options. Oh, like money gives you choices. Um, and I desperately wanted more choices. So I had from kind of that young age, this, this desire, like this deep, deep in me, uh, longing for more financial freedom. So combined with kind of a very simple, like save half principle, um, you know, I started at 19. So, and we became financially independent when I was 32. So it was 13 years. It wasn't like, and two years later, we were there. It did take 13 years, which honestly being in kind of the FI space uh, is about average. Like I would say most people takes takes about 13 years. Um, we weren't high earners, but my husband joined the military. So we have a little bit of a military pension, which kind of helps offset that a bit. That's so great. And thank you so much for providing further understanding about you know the military pension, also the simple principle of saving half. And just for context for cost of living, was your cost mm -hmm. of living relatively low or? Um, unfortunately, no, not really. We lived uh, right outside of Washington, D.C. Um, oh, wow. But with each, you know, each place you live, there's challenges, but there's also upsides. So it was kind of an expensive cost of living area. But the upside of that is that we got a housemate and that, you know, he contributed like $800 a month towards our housing cost. And that one choice put us ahead like $25,000 over the years that he lived with us. So where, you know, in other areas, like you might not be able to rent one room in your house for $800. Um, it did work there. Yeah. Oh, that's so great to understand. And yeah, I appreciate you sharing more of the numbers and kind of the hacks. And, you know, I live in Los Angeles and a lot of people are like, how can people live in LA or New York? I don't understand. And, you know, I think it's a lifestyle choice, obviously, mm -hmm. a, a professional choice potentially. But also the good thing about living in big cities is that you get a lot of stuff for free. I mean, there are so many arts and cultural things that I can access for free. There are ways to hack it, like having a roommate, you know, moving in with a partner. There are different ways to go about it. And so I really appreciate you sharing that. And I love that you mentioned that it wasn't just like, and two years later, you <laughs> quit your job and you were ready to, you know, never work again. And I think that's amazing that you started at 19. I think so many people do not have that financial awareness at that age. I definitely did not. And that one choice, as you mentioned, kind of just sets you on this path for freedom at an early age, which is amazing. But something that you also mentioned is it kind of was ingrained in you from this one kind of traumatic experience, mm -hmm. watching your mom say, I can't afford to leave this marriage. And that's something that I have thought about so often because there's this common divorce statistic that, you know, 40 to 50% of marriages end in divorce. Mm -hmm. And I wonder... <laughs> how many marriages would end up in divorce if finances were not an issue? Because I think the number would be probably closer to 75 or 80%. I'm totally making that number up, by the way. So don't quote me on anything. I'm making that up. But in my mind, I have a feeling it would be far, far more because we have seen this situation time and time and again, you know, where women in particular are saying, I can't afford to leave. And, you know, there are whole issues like living in a community property state, not having a prenup, you know, taxes, 
being a stay-at-home mom and not having that income or, or that work experience, you know, for a long time. I mean, there's so many issues that play into these factors and it's very troubling and, and disturbing when you realize how much power and control money offers one person in that situation, mm -hmm. but also conversely, how many doors it can open up when you have that access. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was a huge motivation. Like just, I think understanding that principle at a really young age, it, it gave me that motivation and that drive. And like you read in the bio, when my husband and I got married, we had $55,000 of debt. So it, kind of cemented our marriage early on in like, okay, we need to figure this out. Um, mm -hmm. This isn't, especially because neither of us went into high earning degrees, you know, even combined, we never hit six figures um, for, you know, the last 20 years. So you have to kind of, uh, you have to be a little bit more focused and there were a lot more trade-offs, you know, it's really challenging to save half if you're not a high income earner. Yes. And, but I always encourage people like, if you really desire that, like if that is your goal and it seems impossible, look at the other people in your community who are earning half of what you earn because they're there and they're doing it and they're making it work somehow. And it can kind of give you an idea of like, is that lifestyle change um, palatable? Like, mm -hmm. is that doable for you? Is that worth the trade-off? Because for most of us, you know, there are people in our communities who are earning or living on half of what we're living on. Yeah, totally. And I think that's so great to mention. Like, what are people doing in your community? How are they making it work? And then, yeah, you mentioned a really important word, trade-off. You know, what are the trade-offs? Because every single choice we make, whether it's financial, whether it's lifestyle, comes at a cost, good or bad. And we all make these choices, you know, whether I'm going to spend this today or invest it today, or whether I'm going to work longer or work less. And there's no necessarily right or wrong answers. But if you, yes, want to retire early and be financially independent in your 30s, 40s, 50s, aka any other time before the traditional retirement age, yeah, you're going to have to do things a bit differently. And Something that I always say with debt repayment, but the same is true in regards to reaching fire is whatever got you into that situation is not what's going to get you out of that situation. So you really have to understand, A, what did get you into that situation? And then be like, okay, I need to do things differently because the same strategy is not going to work if I want to change my life and reach a different result, right? Yeah. So just for everyone listening and for some inspiration, what did it feel like once you reached fire? How did your life change? What did you feel like, if anything? Mm -hmm. So I guess for a little bit of context, because we weren't high earners, because we had all this debt going in, I didn't expect to be able to retire early. Um I assumed I was like, initially I was shooting for like 60. If we could just be like financially independent by 60 and I didn't know fire was a thing. I don't think it was a thing yet, uh, you know, 20 years ago. So that wasn't our goal. That wasn't our ambition. Cause I honestly just didn't think it was possible. And mm -hmm. for anyone who doesn't think that's possible for you, 
I just encourage people to get started because as you start to get going, you build momentum and compound interest starts to happen. And, you know, you can start to dream bigger later, which is, um, which is essentially what we did. So we just started on like more financial freedom was kind of the, the objective, but we added rental properties and, you know, our investments grew. So we had done many retirements all throughout our 20s. We had taken a break, we had stepped away because I didn't think we could retire early because I didn't, you know, I thought it was like, I was, we were gonna wait till we were 60. So we had done these breaks to kind of have that little taste, that little experience of being away from the nine to five. So when we became financially independent, we essentially said, well, let's, let's just count it another experiment. Let's just take a year off. Like I know we can afford a year off um, because for a lot of people, you don't have to be completely financially independent to make a lifestyle change, to change jobs, to change careers, to take a break. And with my coaching clients, I see it all too often. People wait too long. They wait because mm. they're because it's still scary and they keep mm -hmm. hoping that having more money will make it less scary. <laughs> yeah. But having more money doesn't necessarily change your internal feelings about money. Yes. Um, that fear, that scarcity, that panic of like, what if I run out is still kind of there, even when people have large net worths, unless mm -hmm. they do that internal work. So for us, we decided we'll just take a year off. You know, the numbers, I thought they would work. I wasn't 100% sure, but we had taken breaks before and having those little practice ones made it much easier to do, you know, a full year for both of us. And we just said, we'll see how it goes. And one year turned into two, and now it's been six years. And part of that is um, I did you know, start doing more creative work, start doing more entrepreneurial work over the last six years. But part of it, honestly, is that we have five little kids at home, um, five to 14. And so we're wow. kind of like, like the next five, like we have five years until they start graduating from high school. <laughs> yeah. And the next five years is kind of intense. And we just made the choice, like we can work later. If in 10 years we decide, hey, Maybe we didn't save enough for retirement. We'll go back to work in 10 years because with five kids out of the house, like we're going to, I don't even know what we're going to do with ourselves, to be honest. Like <laughs> we have so much free time. Oh my gosh. So much free energy. What do I do with myself? <laughs> an emotional bandwidth and the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing about that experience. And I love that you treated this as an experiment because I think that's so important for people to realize that you can try things out. And yeah. that word experiment has actually been very helpful for me kind of in creating this kind of mental shift for things that are scary for me. So for example, obviously putting on Lola retreat was very scary for me. And in my mind, I just kept saying, this is an experiment. This is an experiment. Obviously, that experiment is on hold right now, given COVID, and I don't know what the future holds, sadly. But having that word experiment really kind of freed me up from the expectations around the result and freed me up to just say, let's see what happens. And you also mentioned something really important that you were working towards this goal to free up other things in your life and to make sure that, you know, you were 
trying things out and, and reaching your goals. Yep. So I'm curious, was there a specific financial independent number or financial um, independent retire early equation that you followed? I know there's so many different kind of um, equations out there that people use. And I'm just curious from a mechanical mathematical standpoint, was there one that you followed? We looked more at cash flow. So our our kind of living expenses are supplied by kind of three main sources. There's my husband's military pension, which is about a third. There's our rental properties, which are about a third. And there are investments, which are about a third. And so those, you know, rental properties and the military pension is like a monthly cash flow kind of mm-hmm. thing. Uh, it's not necessarily like a percentage, kind of like the 4% rule. Mm-hmm. And then on our investments, I figured we could pull between like three to 6%. Uh, most people are kind of very conservative on the 4% rule. I'm a little bit more loosey goosey with it. And especially when the stock market's doing well, I feel really comfortable pulling 6% off the top. I obviously wouldn't do that when the stock market is performing poorly or negative, but we keep like two to three years worth of um, our total expenses in cash. Oh, wow. So we don't have to pull any from the stock market on any given year if we don't want to. So we kind of have that that big cash buffer. Oh, that's so great. I appreciate you mentioning that your strategy was more about cash flow. And mm-hmm. I appreciate you mentioning kind of where those cash flow buckets came from. And, you know, from what I understand, you had this cash flow amount that kind of freed you up from traditional work, but then you're still working and, and making money, but on your own terms. And so I know there's a lot of kind of conversation around maybe it should just be five because a lot of people are not necessarily retiring and, you know, doing nothing, so to speak, but you're retiring in your own way. And so you can have your own career. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you can kind of build the thing that you actually really want to have. I've actually never taken any income from my online business because we have our bills covered another way. Mm-hmm. So I've never I've never thought of it as an income generating source. We either, if there's any money left over, we either uh, donate it or we put it in investments. But instead, I've kind of viewed my work as how can I use this to cash flow all of the creative projects I want to do? Like, what's the work I'm most excited to do, and how can I get my business as a whole? to help cover that cost. So I'm not just doing a very expensive hobby here online. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. I think that's so great. And that sounds like the absolute dream of using your business to cash flow the projects that you actually want to do. And I love that you mentioned that you use that money to either invest or to donate. And that's all about having a money mission statement, which is a concept that I'm really into of like, how do I want to use my money to better the world, to better my life, to actually have this mission with my money to use it in a way that makes sense. So um, you have a lot on your plate, clearly, uh, but I also know that you are good at quitting. So in 2019, you spoke at Lola Retreat Seattle, and your talk was amazing, by the way, about having a quit list. Can you share why a quit list is important to manage money and mental health? Yeah, there's so much cultural expectation to do more. 
like that narrative and that story of just do more. And most productivity kind of uh, advice is focused on how can you just fit more into your day? And our internal list of here's all the things I could be doing, here's all the things I should be doing, it kind of doesn't honor the fact that not only is our time finite, but our emotional and our mental bandwidth and our attention are finite. Ooh, yes. <laughs> we have, these are very scarce resources. And what happens when you try to do all the things you could be doing and all the things you should be doing, you don't necessarily do the most important things. You don't reserve enough emotional and mental bandwidth for the things that matter the most to you. So going through kind of whenever I like, especially with coaching clients, like we're going to focus on this big goal and this big project that they want to accomplish. We have to kind of start with what are you going to quit? What are you going to stop doing altogether? What are you going to put a pause on? Maybe like it's something that's important to you, but you're going to pause it. Uh, what things are you going to start to drift on? Like they're fine. <laughs> they're doing okay. They don't need all of your emotional mental bandwidth right now. Because the reality is most people, I would say 99% of people are at capacity. Especially right now. <laughs> Especially right now. And it's, it's tough because I feel like we kind of get guilted into if you have capacity time-wise, then you should also have the mental and emotional bandwidth to go along with it. But that often gets used up before our time even gets used up, which is why like at the end of the day, people are watching Netflix. Like they still have another hour before bed, but they're just wiped. There's no more bandwidth left to mm -hmm. write a novel, to like, you know, start a side hustle. Like you can't swap your Netflix for a side hustle if you have no mental and emotional bandwidth left. So I, I always think it's important to start with this idea of a quit list, just write a list of all the things that are taking your time, but also your mental and emotional bandwidth, um, especially things that are taking a disproportional amount of your mental and emotional bandwidth for the return you're getting. And I even, even with coaching clients, like I'll have them focus on their job. Like, what are you doing at your job that takes you more mental and emotional bandwidth than maybe it takes other people? Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people that's managing others, you know, they got promoted into a role because they were good at one thing and now they're managing other people and having those difficult conversations, having those corrective conversations, dealing with workplace drama just kills two or three of their work hours just emotionally. Yeah. So kind of starting with that, that quit list, what can you stop, pause, you know, borrow some of that time or bandwidth from? You brought up so many great points. And my favorite is that, you know, our kind of free time just not almost ever <laughs> match mm -hmm. our energy levels and our emotional capacity. And what we've seen with the pandemic is that we are all so burnt out. And I mean, I don't think I'm alone in this, but my mental and energetic capacity is just not what it was pre pandemic, like at all whatsoever. Like 
my 100% is now 70%. And we all know that those 100% days are like rare. <laughs> so mm-hmm. the 70% now is rare. And honestly, sometimes I feel like I'm working on 30 to 40% capacity day to day. And then if it's a good day and I'm firing on all c- cylinders and that's 70%, but it's like, yeah, all the capacity has kind of been scaled back. And I liken it to this kind of metaphor of it feels like there's this very large file that's constantly being downloaded in the background and then it like pauses and breaks down you have to re-download the file again it's like it's taking up so much juice in the background of the computer of your mind (laughs) and you don't see it you don't recognize it you're doing other work but it keeps happening it's there and that's what I feel like you know is going on with the pandemic and the various global crises that we've experienced mm-hmm. the past year and a half, two years. And it's it's very difficult. And, you know, we're expected to go on as normal, like as if everything's the same when it's completely not. So I think it's such a good point to recognize that your free time is not the same as how much energy or capacity you have. Yeah. And this is where the finances and the mental health, I feel like, really intertwined because, you know, we, like I said, our initial goal was financial freedom. And it wasn't until I had, I like to kindly refer to it as like a little mental breakdown. Mm -hmm. Um, But I spent a month, you know, kind of like in an inpatient facility and was diagnosed with bipolar. And it was after that experience that I was like, oh, I might not be able to work a normal job for the next 30 years. Like this, this might not be entirely within my control or my ability. And it it caused me to like be more strategic and to be more thoughtful of like, how can we shrink the number of years that, that I have to work kind of a nine to five, 50 weeks a year job? Because I just wasn't, I'm not really cut out for it. And with that, that fatigue, we've made some very conscious choices like this year, especially of unplugging and trying to reset and like find my baseline again. Uh, So we've done some long road trips. We've done some camping and actually in three weeks here, I'm very excited. We are going to embark on a 10 week kind of slow travel through the Southwest um, for the winter. And I'm so excited to just find my baseline, get back to 100% capacity and, and be excited and, you know, have that capacity that I need to do some really cool things in 2022. Yes. I love that. I'm so glad you're taking that time for yourself. And I love that you mentioned getting back to that baseline. I think that's really important to understand what that looks like for you personally. And thank you so much for being brave and sharing your experience with being diagnosed with bipolar. I know that that is a complex diagnosis and there's a lot of stigma. And so I'm curious, you know, what do you wish people knew about that disorder and what do people get wrong about it? You know, it's, it's terrifying. It's like, People have so much hesitation to have those conversations with their doctors or to get that diagnosis. Um, 
in that regard, it's very unlike depression or anxiety where you kind of bring it to your doctor like, hey, I think I have anxiety. Um, and you're kind of relieved when he's like, yeah, I think you do too. Here's mm -hmm. something that can help. Yeah. <laughs> Being diagnosed bipolar is very different from that for most people in that um, I think a misconception is that receiving that diagnosis will people irrationally fear that the worst and the most scary um, symptoms will then be true. Mm. And so I always encourage people like, you're still you. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Whatever whatever you're dealing with is still what you're going to be dealing with. Receiving a diagnosis does not like attract worse symptoms than you already have. And and I would say the other thing is that there's a lot of very mild forms and a pain point that a lot of people have is that they have very mild symptoms um throughout their life. And this was the case with me. I had uh I would say moderate symptoms, but to the point where I didn't think it was, I just thought it was me. You know, mm -hmm. it's another confusing thing about bipolar is that it feels like our personality. It feels like yeah. just who we are. It's not separate from us where if you have anxiety, you want to just cut the anxiety out. Mm -hmm. um, this is so ingrained into our rhythm and our life and our personality that to not, it's also why we're, we really struggle with being uh, medicine compliant is that sometimes you take medicine and then you don't feel like yourself. Um, yeah. It's like, it's ingrained in the way that like uh, gender or sexual orientation is kind of even if you could change it, like, would you? Because mm -hmm. it feels like so much of who we are is connected to those things. Um, so, yeah, I think for people who have kind of mild, moderate symptoms, I liken it to the ocean or to waves. Your energy and your enthusiasm and your optimism and your creativity, they rise up and then they slowly... <laughs> go back down and you have less energy and less optimism and less enthusiasm. And people just get used to those waves. They get used to that ocean until there's a bigger incident, um, until the three foot waves or the five foot waves become like tsunami level waves and they're caught off guard and they don't understand that all of this is wrapped together. They just feel like they're losing it. Uh, people around them probably just feel like they're losing it. So whenever I see people acting, um, I would say out of character, you know, they have too much energy or too much enthusiasm or they're, you know, they're spending or their sexual behavior or things are just not, it's out of character for them. You know, it's helpful to have people around in your life that can say, hey, maybe we should, maybe we should look into this because this isn't how you normally behave instead of just being like, well, they lost it. Like, I don't know what that was about. And letting people kind of implode their life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and, you know, that can happen where people implode their life and they don't know personally what's going on and people around them don't know how to deal with that. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, that's why I think it's important that we do break the stigma around this so that a people can recognize when, yeah, you know what? I'm not feeling myself. I'm feeling like myself. I'm not acting like myself and that people around you can use compassion and kindness instead of judgment to say, Hey, I think you might need some additional care and how can I support you in that? And I love that you mentioned how this diagnosis kind of shifted your trajectory with your finances and your work life because you were really honest with yourself and said, I don't think I can work a nine to five for 30 years. And, you know, I have depression, anxiety, and OCD, and I can manage my mental health much better being self-employed than I can, you know, working under someone at an office and having to show up and perform all day. And so for me, I I feel similar, even though it's not the same diagnosis, but I understand like, how can I create those financial and work shifts to manage my mental health? And I think anyone listening, you know, for whatever you're dealing with, figuring out how you can make your finances and work life make sense in a way that can manage your mental health. And you know, on the mental health and wealth show, I approach mental health kind of like people do with physical health. It's something that we all have, whether you have a diagnosis or not, like everyone deals with mental health. You know, maybe you have a bad day, maybe you're angry, maybe you're sad. Obviously there are different degrees where people have clinical depression, anxiety, OCD, bipolar, what have you, but everyone, you know, as we've seen through the pandemic, everyone has mental health and can be affected by the day-to-day life. And so how can we set up systems in place to support that? Because I think if we don't have our mental health, we don't have anything else. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, like you mentioned, being self-employed, you know, it starts in a work environment and a work compatibility. And sometimes you just have to take kind of an honest look and say, is this helpful for me? Is this a good yeah. long-term solution? Um, because if it's not a long-term solution, I would start figuring out how to make a change and just being really honest with yourself in a non-judgmental way. I I was working at a job that there was a tremendous amount of drama and fighting and just meanness and like bullying. Um that's not a great long-term solution for me. It will never be a great fit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't matter how much I try or how much effort I put into it. That's not going to work for me. So if your work isn't compatible or if your work environment isn't compatible, um, you know, finding something that is a long-term solution because like we talked about that mental and emotional bandwidth, there are some places that will just take all of it. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Every single day. Um, and there's no amount of boundaries that will fix something that's just a bad fit. Yes. And so I, I would say that's like a really helpful place to start instead of trying to like bandage something that maybe deep down you know this this isn't going to work for me and start to think about what is a good fit. For me, I knew that um, I needed that flexibility of – doing more work when I felt that increase of like energy and enthusiasm uh, and creativity and then be able to do less work when um, when I didn't. So I would say my work hours shift from about five hours a week is my baseline. 
even if I'm like in deep depression, five hours a week is helpful. I always try to make sure my work is helpful for my mental Mm -hmm. health, not neutral, not negative, helpful. So if I'm deeply depressed about five hours a week, about an hour a day is helpful for me because it kind of gives me a little, a little boost, but it's not too fatiguing. And then it flexes up to about 15, maybe 20 hours a week, um, rarely, but I take off probably about 14 weeks a year. So I take a lot of breaks and I know that that's what I need. And so while that's kind of an extreme example, because that's what's actually helpful <laughs> for me, mm-hmm. uh, but starting to think through, you know, what kind of schedule, uh, what kind of work would make sense. Yeah. That's so important and so needed. And so, you know, after realizing that you had this job that was not a good fit, you know, eventually you started doing your blog and writing and creating. And that brings me to your new book, Fire the Haters, which is about having the courage to create in a critical world. And I'm about halfway through it right now, and I'm loving it. And right before we started this interview, I was telling Jillian that, I have a Google alert for my name and that I got this email about this one blogger who had commented on an article I wrote and they were like, this is a really bizarre article. The author doesn't know what they're doing. Does she even have an editor? And (laughs) I was having such a rough day that I just totally ended up in tears and, you know, it starts making you question yourself, like, am I a good writer? Is this just a fluke? Even though I've been doing this for seven years (laughs) and, you know, I was able to feel better the next day after some sleep and some distance. But when you do create online, you attract haters, you attract commenters, you attract trolls. There's just no way around it if you have any kind of following. And you don't have to have a huge following either. That's another misconception. So I'd love for you to share, like, what do you hope readers get out of the book? And what was your inspiration for creating the book? I would say my inspiration was the fact that I really struggled with this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as you as you go through the book, it's there's there's a character arc um from where I started to where I am now. Um all of the things I write about, I write about because I got wrong. And I they added stress and they added pain to my life uh, until I figured them out. And like I say, with my mental health, it's I say my mental health is pretty much my number one priority. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of trumps everything else because it affects everything else. Yes. And so figuring out how to, like I said, make my work support my mental health and not hurt my mental health, um, I had to I had to figure all this stuff out. And so that was kind of my inspiration. Eventually, I would say most people do figure it out. And there's a lot of great content creators and and people online who in an Instagram post or in a blog post kind of detailed how they got to the other side and what that looks like. And my hope and my inspiration was what if I could just gather all of this collective wisdom in one like simple kind of guidebook and it might it might give people the courage to start. It might save them from quitting kind of in those early years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might just help them go further faster with like less suffering. 
Yeah. Yeah. I love it. It's been such a wonderful book to read so far, just seeing the examples and then kind of having a better understanding of the way haters and trolls work and kind of the psychology around that too. So, you know, as you mentioned, a big part of that is managing your mental health, but also managing and setting boundaries. So what suggestions do you have for new creators on setting boundaries and to help manage their mental health? Well, it's the the tricky thing about online boundaries is that it's going to be different for all of us where, you know, you go into a coffee shop and there's certain rules and the rules are kind of the same no matter what coffee shop you go into. Um, online, everyone has different boundaries. Everyone has different rules that they've created for their work, for their online presence. And so your audience doesn't know what your boundaries are. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know, they will be tested a thousand different ways. You know, there there's no rule that you need that won't be broken if you don't like know it yourself and clearly state it. And so starting boundaries, one just acknowledges, I have a whole chapter called you make the thing, you make the rules. Oh, yes. Like just taking ownership of the fact that like I made this Therefore, I have to make the rules. And whether that is a social media account, whether that's your email inbox, whether that's, you know, your website and comments, um, you make the thing, you make the rules and clear as kind. It's your responsibility to be very clear about the rules that you set for yourself. And other people can't know for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not mean Uh, to be clear. Like it is a kindness. It shows a mutual respect and a care for the other person. Like I care enough to be honest and to be clear about this. Yes. Yeah. And I'm curious, something that I've been thinking about lately is, you know, it's one thing to set the boundaries. It's another to deal with the emotional impact of doing that. Even if it's received well, it can be so emotionally draining to set that boundary and to speak up and it it just takes so much out of you. So I'm curious, you know, how do you manage that part of dealing with the emotional draining portion of setting boundaries? And then obviously the boundaries are not accepted and kind of people bulldoze over them. Then you have a whole other problem on your hand. Yeah. I think it's much easier uh, mentally and emotionally if you put that clarity at the very beginning. And so prefacing whatever you're doing with that clarity, because it feels a being clear is always a little bit vulnerable, Mm -hmm. but being clear after the fact, because it kind of feels like you're reprimanding someone um, for something they probably didn't know is way more emotionally draining. Mm-hmm. So like one of my friends who had read the book had an article published uh, in a newspaper and she shared it on her personal Facebook page. And because she read the book, she said, okay, listen, <laughs> I wrote this post. I don't want any political comments. I don't want any advice. And this isn't a place to like vent your frustrations. And if you do that, I will remove all of those posts. And it was much easier to do that on the front end. And then everyone behaved. Yeah. <laughs> but if she had to deal with like 
those kinds of comments and then like the relational fallout of deleting someone's comment, like one of her actual friends' comments, yeah. um, it's, it's much more costly on the back end. So being really clear, you know, around all the rules you create, around your time, around your energy, around when you can get back to people, what you can and can't do, especially around conditional yeses, I would say yes and no uh, don't get us in as much trouble as yes under these circumstances. I can. And that's where we often don't go that extra mile on our clarity. Um, when my little my kids were little, I was in this mom's group and like on the leadership team and we were planning like a game night and the person who was leading the committee was like, okay, we need snacks. Who can bring snacks? And I'm like, I can bring snacks. And she's like, perfect. What kind of snack are you bringing? And I'm like, I don't know, something from Costco. That's what I'm bringing. Uh, yeah. She was like, no, we have categories of snacks because we can't end up with too many <laughs> of one category, like we have salty snacks, we have sweet snacks. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll bring a dessert. No, we need to know what dessert you're bringing. Cause if we have like too many brownies, it's gonna be a disaster. <laughs> I was like, okay, listen, um, you know, I have two little kids, I'm gonna go to Costco and I can pick up whatever they have available and that I can do. But if you need a specific one like lemon bars and they don't have it, I don't have the time to go to five other stores or to bake lemon bars. So if you're okay with, you know, brownie Armageddon, um, I can do that. If that doesn't work for you, I can't bring a snack. Um, if you do the work on the front end, it takes a lot less energy than like dealing with the confrontation on the back mm -hmm. end of either her being frustrated with me because we had too many brownies or me being you know, frustrated that now I have to go to another store, now I have to bake these things and I don't have time for this. Like, mm -hmm. um, it saves a lot of that emotional work. Yeah, I think it's so important to set expectations. And I tell new freelancers this, and I think this is a good lesson for anybody in life, you know, whether it's workplace, relationships, setting expectations about when you can get back to people, what you're going to be doing in what time frame, if you don't have the capacity for something, if something's going to take a little bit longer, just because our brains are story making machines. And so if you don't address that, then people will come to their own conclusions mm -hmm. that are probably wrong, probably harmful. You know, it's like if you don't text or email someone back, then suddenly they're like, oh my gosh, do they hate me? Do they not like me? Am I getting fired? Maybe they're just busy or sick, but if you can at least say, hey, I'm in a really busy season, it's going to take a long time to get back to you, or, you know, hey, I'm not available this week, you know, just letting people know on the front, as you, as you mentioned, so that people's <laughs> story-making machines mm -hmm. don't go haywire and start making incorrect assumptions about you and what you're doing. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, how can online criticism or haters affect people's mental health? And something I just wanted to acknowledge, which you kind of reference in the book, obviously we can't know for sure, but do you think haters are also dealing with their own mental health issues? Yeah. You know, I arranged the book. The first section is kind of like the rules, the boundaries, the online hate, like understanding all of that. And then the second section is the inner critic. And what makes online hate 
so difficult to handle is that it presses and amplifies our inner critic. Because if we didn't have any insecurities about that, we wouldn't care about the criticism. Yeah. Like I'm six, I'm six foot. I desperately, my entire life wanted to be six two. I mean, like every night for nightly prayer, I prayed to be six two, like just (laughs) desperately wanted to be six two. Um, So if someone is critical online about me being too tall, I'm like, whatever, buddy, I'm not tall enough. Like (laughs) I'm two inches too short. Um, and I don't care. Like it's, it's not because I I don't have that inner criticism. I've never Mm -hmm. thought I was too tall. I've always wanted to be taller. But when we have that inner critic, that external criticism is like 10 times as loud. And so as much as possible, finding a way to slowly do that internal work and come up with different, um, really the middle section is it's different perspectives, different ways of looking at a situation that are true, but they're also helpful for us being productive and creative and working and kind of staying in the game. And so I think that's, that's an important place to start because if you can kind of quell the inner critic, then the external criticism, you can also see that's that person. And to your point of their mental health, I would say for sure it's about their emotional maturity. Mm-hmm. They kind of use a toddler skill set and they'd never progressed past that, probably because they didn't have to. Probably because this toddler skill set of yelling and fighting and throwing tantrums and being so difficult that you get your way worked for them in their family of origin. And then they created a relationship circle around them that that also works for them in their marriage and in their workplace and all those other kinds of dynamics. And in the book, I mentioned the fact that like, that's not your problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Their emotional immaturity, their lack of personal growth is not your job. It is not your responsibility. Um It's probably someone's, probably their parents, maybe a therapist. Someone should get paid to help them Mm -hmm. progress through this, but you're not getting paid. Therefore, it is not your job. So when I see people throwing tantrums online, I'm like, nobody's cutting me a check to help this person like (laughs) grow and develop and become the best version of themselves. Like I use the quote in... Uh, from Chris Brogan in the book that I can't fix all the stupidity on the internet. I'm not the dumbass whisperer. Like <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's not your job and it shouldn't be your job. It's an yeah. endless, thankless, <laughs> never ending uh, job if you try to take on all the stupidity on the internet. So whenever I see people behaving badly online, I'm just like, and not my circus, not my monkeys. Like, nobody's paying me. And I've done like the really difficult, hard emotional work to like achieve my own emotional maturity. Like that was hard one. So like, I know that it's difficult and costly, but it's still not my issue that other people haven't. Totally. Yeah. You brought up so many good points. And I love that you mentioned that 
there are these kind of emotional landmines that people, mm-hmm. you know, step on and it can trigger us with our deep insecurities, with a previous experience, with that inner critic we have, and it gets amplified and it feels so much more real when someone else says it like, oh my gosh, that's my biggest fear. And they just said it. Or that reminds me of this abusive traumatic experience I had as a kid, or this is triggering my imposter syndrome and now people know. And yeah, you're right. If we didn't have that particular inner critic or that previous trauma, maybe it wouldn't hurt so bad, but it does. Mm -hmm. And then to your other point, you know, I try to really have compassion for haters, not saying that I want to engage with them, but for my own mental health to try to have yeah. compassion and think, wow, it is really sad that you took your time out of your day to tell me how much you hate this particular thing. I remember this happened a few years ago. On New Year's Day, this guy emailed me. I forget. He was like, this is the dumbest article I've ever read. You're stupid for paying off your debt. You could have put money in savings and investing, da 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 da, da. And I just emailed him back and I was like, I am so sorry and sad for you that you felt that you had to spend your New Year's Day to message me about this. Yeah. Like, And I was genuine. I was like, you should be with your family, relaxing, doing anything. And the fact that you're spending energy on something you hate. Like, if you think about that logically, like, if you supposedly hate something or disagree with it or think it's stupid, why even give it the emotional energy or time? Like, if time is the greatest asset that we have, why would you even invest in that? Which is just, like, something that's so paradoxical to me. But that's one way that I try to have compassion for people that are haters and just, like, this is so sad for you that you felt that you had to do this and then just release them. And then, yeah, because it's it's not your responsibility. And that is something that probably a therapist or a close friend that could help them manage that. And there are probably traumatized, hurt people too. You know, there's that saying that hurt people hurt people. They're not just doing that just for fun, but because, yeah, in some way that makes them feel better. It helps them manage their own mental health. As you mentioned, maybe that was one of their coping mechanisms in the past that that worked. So my final question um, about creating online, you know, when people are dealing with haters and and criticism and, and even just, you know, advice for life, how can people not give up and keep going? Yeah, one of the um, quotes from the book, I love so much. I created a whole chapter about it. Um, was from Brian Harris. He said, whenever you're starting a project, the number one thing you have to optimize for is not quitting. Mm. And that saved me a dozen times because it's so easy to compare our journey to someone else's or to compare what we're doing to what we think we should be doing or the right way to do it or the perfect way to do it. But sometimes that's not attainable or it's just not going to happen. So if we constantly optimize to like try to do it the right way or try to meet everyone's expectations, um, we might end up quitting. Mm -hmm. And so instead, I think whether you're trying to pay down debt or you're trying to budget or you're trying to start a business or you're trying to create an online presence, optimize for not quitting. And kind of how you mentioned, you know, trauma and deep bruises. I, I, I had that in the first part of the book. Like sometimes we have deep bruises, 
Like on the surface, it looks fine. On the surface, it looks like it's healed. But if someone knows the exact spot to push and they apply pressure Mm -hmm. really hard with their thumb, like we'll feel it. We'll feel the intensity of that pain again. And if you have those deep bruises, part of optimizing for not quitting is creating a wide circle around that. Like try not to engage in whatever that thing is. You know, so for online creators that might be like not reading the comments um, Mm -hmm. or, you know, with Google alerts, if it's like a random website, like I'm not going to read that. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I wish I did that. (laughs) (laughs) But kind of knowing what your deep bruises are and put some systems in place um, to protect yourself. You know, I, I shared in the book that I blogged anonymously for two years. And a big part of that was that I had had an experience with a family member where they had come into my work and yelled at me and shamed me and said for all my coworkers, like, that I'm an awful, horrible person and I deserve to be fired. And it was just like me standing there sobbing and it was such a disaster Um, on like the worst day I've ever had at work. Like on the very worst day, this person came in and I thought, I'm going to have bad days on the internet. Like I'm going to have days where I mess up and the internet turns against me and, and I want to quit anyways. And knowing the length that that family member would go to like hurt me on my worst day, I thought, I think that would cause me to quit. Mm. I think I can handle a really bad day online, but I don't think I can handle a really bad day online. And a piling on from family. So I blogged anonymously. Like I just took that out of the equation until I got to the point where I was like, yeah, no, I think it took me like two, three years before I really felt like I could have a bad day online and I could have people pile on to that and I'll be okay. Like I'll survive it. So I think knowing what some of those are, creating a wide circle and, and not setting yourself up against unrealistic expectations. Yes. You know, like if I start this business, I have to earn 40,000 in the first year, or I have to have this so many clients, or I have to have this kind of growth, like in order to be valid or keep going, like just, or I have to like have a perfect budget in order to budget. Like, no, if you have like a shoddy budget and that's what you can do, do that. Yes. Yes. You brought up so many great points and this has been such a wonderful and helpful interview. Thank you so much for being on the show, Jillian. Where can people find you and buy your book? Yeah. JillianJohnsRude.com. I have quite a few free courses and resources there, um, especially for online, uh, especially small business owners some stuff about building an online presence. And my book is available everywhere. Amazon, Barnes and Noble can even order it through like your local bookstore. Everyone check it out. It is fire the haters. It is amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show. I so appreciate you sharing your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the mental health and wealth show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the mental hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. 
The best part, it is free. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.